Welcome to the Fit Pro Industry Podcast. Lisa and Lutra Grisali are the founders of Exercise and Nutrition Works Incorporated and the creators of the Certified Fitness Nutrition Specialist CEU Accredited Home Study Program. They are business coaches focused on helping personal trainers, coaches, health practitioners, and fitness industry experts monetize their nutrition knowledge with a proven system to convert prospects into high-paying clients. Create custom meal plans based on the individual and automate their business to add an additional $10,000 per month. To get a copy of their groundbreaking ebook, Seven Proven Steps to Fill Your Nutrition Practice, and the Seven Most Common Mistakes to Avoid, that will work hand in hand with this podcast to help you transform your business, go to http colon backslash backslash monetizeyournutritionknowledge.com. On the podcast, Lisa Crisali talks with industry experts, sharing insider secrets and cutting-edge programs that are working today. And now, here is your host, Lisa Crisali. Welcome to the Fit Pro Industry Podcast, where we have candid conversations with leaders in the health, fitness, and wellness industry. This is your host, Lisa Crisali, and I'm the co-owner of Exercise and Nutrition Works, Inc., and the Monetize Your Nutrition Knowledge Convert, Create, Automate event, which brings together business owners and entrepreneurs, creating custom solutions and learning how to monetize their nutrition systems. Once again this week, a very, very exciting guest. And boy, if you've been following me for any time at all, you know how much I love to challenge both my mindset and understand about personality trends and, and what makes people tick. And we include a whole component on neuro-linguistic programming in our courses. So I have the opportunity to share a super exciting guest today. His name is Dr. Chris Friesen, and he's a psychologist who has always been fascinated by what makes people successful. He is a licensed clinical forensic and neuropsychologist, but now primarily helps professional, national, and Olympic and up-and-coming elite athletes, as well as other high achievers, such as professionals, entrepreneurs, executives, academics, and writers, achieve their personal and professional potential. He is currently the director of Friesen Sport and Performance Psychology, and he's the author of Achieve, find out who you are, what you really want, and how to make it happen. Now, you'll have access to everything on the podcast page, and you'll be able to follow him or find out more information about him at FriesenPerformance.com. And again, all of the links will be there for you. So, Dr. Friesen, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for having me. Wonderful, wonderful. So, we had an opportunity to chat briefly ahead of time, and we'll share this at the end as well. But you sent over two gifts for our listeners today. And of course, I always love to make sure that I know about what it is that we're going to be covering today. And I had the opportunity to do one of these, which is your five basic personality tendencies and this is fascinating. Okay, I love this stuff. <laughs> so I'm going to have you share a bit about that. But I guess what we want to do is first find out a little bit more about you and really how you got involved in the industry and what it is that you're doing today. Sure, sure. Yeah. So as you said, I'm a psychologist and a lot of this story is in this first book. This is actually book one of the high achievement handbook series, mm -hmm. currently working on book two. And when I was a teenager, I had high levels of what we call negative emotions, which is one of the five basic personality tendencies. I was sort of an anxious kid. In other words, I wasn't doing very well in school. 
And just long story short, I discovered sports. I was playing sports before, but competitive sports. I got into particularly hockey as a goaltender. I'm up in Canada, so you know, <laughs> hockey, hockey's big up here. Yeah, it's a lifestyle. Uh, it's a lifestyle, that's right. And I didn't have a high level of what we call self-efficacy, which is really a fancy way of saying one's belief in their abilities or in themselves. Mm-hmm. And especially when it came to school, I had you know almost zero self-efficacy when it came to excelling in school. It just seemed to be foreign. I had no interest. But I learned pretty quick with hockey that if I really put my mind to it, I could excel. You know, I did pretty well in Canadian standards. I started playing hockey really late. I was 12 years old when I started, not six years old. And I realized, you know, if I tried really hard, I could, you know, excel. And I skipped divisions and that sort of thing and kind of went up the ranks. And I realized eventually that professional hockey career was not going to be in my future. And so I realized that I needed to do something about my life because things changed pretty drastically there. And I decided... I was going to try and take what I learned from hockey and apply it to my schooling. In other words, all the lessons I learned from sports yeah. in terms of how to improve, yeah, and to apply it to school. I also discovered some self-help books at the time as well, including The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is Stephen Covey. And Tony Robbins, of course, everyone knows Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within and Unlimited Power. Those are the the books I discovered. I also discovered a number of autobiographies or biographies with Arthur Ashe, the tennis player, and, and Christopher Reeves, Superman. These things really inspired me and got me to change my mindset. I got into bodybuilding, working out, nutrition, and long story short, I went to university. I brought my grades up, got to university, did really well in university and became a psychologist. To be a licensed psychologist, there's no, at least in Canada, Ontario, where I live, there's no official sports psychology designation like there is forensic neuropsychology and clinical psychology in terms of getting licensed. So when you go through the schooling, there's no real training in in that area. But I really figured out that, you know, I always wanted to go back to my roots of self-improvement and helping other people improve their lives. But I realized, you know, I really want to see people at all levels. So I wanted to see people at their absolute worst. And I tried to challenge myself despite the anxiety it would cause to, you know, work in the forensic domain, which would be I would see people who murdered their children or, you know, things like that. Gang members, you know, that pretty scary things. Or I've worked in many areas like I worked with police officers. I've worked with people with brain injuries, Alzheimer's disease, that sort of thing. So I really wanted to get a diverse, you know, set of experiences So I could fully understand the full spectrum of human potential. So people at their best and their worst. So when I eventually got my license about, I guess it's about a decade ago, I, you know, started to see people from different walks of life, but also started to see some high achievers. And I've slowly sort of built up that part of my practice where I've been working with high achievers, which can include, you know, athletes to other people, like you mentioned at the beginning. So that's sort of the story of how I sort of got to where I am today. Wow. That's pretty fascinating stuff. <laughs> I think you bring a lot to the table. And like where it's really cool is the sports psychology. It's interesting. Now, I think in the U.S. we have a division or a piece of that now. It's sort of broken out or it's an additional component. I'm not a psychologist by any means. but I Yes, know. that's true. Sports psychology in the United States is a lot more developed than in Canada. Fortunately for you guys, unfortunately for oh. us. And you're definitely correct. There's a national organization called ASP. They have a certification process. We have one here as well. It's just different, and I think it's the same in the U.S., it's just different from the licensing boards in terms of getting licensed and that sort of thing. 
Can I ask, how did you start getting involved in, you put in here, professional, national, and Olympic and up-and-coming elite athletes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so given that, you know, my background being an athlete, semi-competitively, I it was competitive for my age division, <laughs> I was, you know, but I stopped playing when I was, I think, 16 or 17 after I was cut by sort of the top sort of team for that age group. After their goal, it came down from the, the league. It's called the Canadian Hockey League, where you get drafted to the NHL. When you get to that level, it's all about winning. And it doesn't matter about my feelings. A 16-year-old kid, you know, all of a sudden has no team for the first time in, in a while. So, you know, that was, you know, I have a lot of experience in that area. I also have a lot of experience with working out. I was in the bodybuilding scene. I didn't ah. compete, but friends of mine competed. My best uh-huh. friend won the Canadian junior a national oh. champion, things like that. And I loved learning about nutrition. I loved learning about just how to better yourself and the physiology behind it. It right. was super fascinating to me. And so it was sort of a natural leap for me to go more into working with athletes. Also, because I'm a neuropsychologist, I work with concussions and uh-huh. I get exposed to lots of athletes that way. And those things, I really noticed how much I missed and love working with athletes when I do that kind of work. You know, a number of years ago, it really convinced me that I needed to do more of that work. It just, I felt really in my element when I was doing that kind of work. So it's slowly built up over time and it's still growing wow. to this day because I still work clinically. I still see people who have depression, anxiety, brain injuries, that sort of thing, strokes, and I don't really do the forensic or criminal work currently. And it's very interesting, but I've moved to a smaller part, basically a town, as opposed to I was from Toronto, which is the biggest city yeah. in Canada. And I don't really want to know all the bad people that live near me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, yeah. Plus, I think, again, with the areas that you're focusing on, these are people who are wanting to make changes and you know, mm-hmm. motivated, and I could see that would be a little bit more positive. So yes. share with us, what is it that you like the most about what it is that you're doing now? I think you hit it right on the <laughs> nail right there. That motivation issue, you know, a big part of being a psychologist is to have good empathy skills. And I think empathy skills are pretty good. <laughs> they're, they're not bad. But when people are very different from you from a personality perspective, yeah. it's much harder to be empathic, understand you know, where they're coming from. And so being myself a highly motivated person, let's say I've worked with a lot of people who had really no motivation to change. That can be very frustrating. And working with athletes who are very interested in doing, you know, anything they can to get better, it's really refreshing. And I have lots of ideas because I also apply these to my own life. So I have lots of ideas and I'm always on to the latest research and trying to keep my eyes open for things that could be helpful for myself and my clients. And so it's yeah. almost like when I work with athletes, I'm talking to a friend. I, yeah. You know, when I first started doing it, I kept thinking, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. This seems too fun. This seems something's wrong here. I shouldn't be having so much fun at my job. But it was really congruent with my personality and my values and that sort of thing. So I love working with people who are motivated. I assume people in your industry as well, when people are, you know, sponges for what you have to tell them, you know you can help them even more because there's so much more you can work with them that usually learn really quickly. And your goal is to kind of bring them up to speed to where you're at. Absolutely. Uh, Not that I'm amazing at everything, but in terms of knowledge. No, absolutely. It's very similar. In fact, my husband, who's a registered dietitian, Mm. he originally started, he worked in the hospitals. He was in burn unit, oncology, Mm. ortho. He was a specialist in diabetes. And he got really frustrated because the same people would come, I mean, other than the burn unit, but the same people would come back time and time again, right? They, Mm -hmm. They weren't motivated to change their eating habits and their meal plans. 
And he, by the way, very similar. He actually was a competitive bodybuilder mm. and just felt that, you know, he wanted to get back involved in the health and fitness side because those people were motivated to make change. And mm. he always says, and you'll laugh at this, he says, with bodybuilders, he goes, if you tell them to go eat a handful of grass, they'll go eat a handful of grass. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you, know, you tell me what yes. to do and I'll do it, right? So, exactly. So it's exactly that component. And then you see change happen, right? It's just, you know, when you work in any, especially as athletes, when they work with a coach, you know, they know how to do their sport or whatever they're doing, but the coach can fine tune and tweak and edit and get them even better. So it's the same working with a psychologist or dietitian or whatever. So exactly synergy there. Yes. So I want to go back to the five basic personality tendencies mm-hmm. and they are great questions. And by the way, again, listeners, this will be available as a download for you. So you can actually just print this off and go through this. It's quite quick and easy to do. So how do you use this? Yeah, great question. So these five basic personality tendencies, I changed some of the names in the measure I provided to you is my own adaptation of existing measures. And the five personality tendencies or the five basic personality tendencies, just my way of describing something called the five-factor model of personality or the big five. So personality researchers have for at least 70 years been trying to figure out, you know, is there one global set of categories or dimensions that we can, you know, fit everybody into And long story short, after years and years of research, there's, for the first time in personality research, there is a general consensus that there are approximately five global personality tendencies that we all tend to differ on. Each of these personality tendencies or personality dimensions are independent of each other. So where you fall on one is no correlation generally, according to research, with where you fall on another. They're also highly stable over time. In other words... Our personality tendencies are really a set of traits. And so these are you know, characteristic ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. And these are highly, we call them stable. In other words, they stay with us for big parts of our lives. As children, they're much more flexible. But essentially, once you hit early adulthood, the research suggests approximately age 30, your traits don't really change much over time, especially in relation to people your age. So there's amazing researchers, you know, recently they follow people 45 years, like unbelievable that they've been able to do this. And there are, you know, high correlations between where someone is, let's say at 25, I was looking at a study today, 25 years old, and where they were at approximately 67 years old. And they were highly correlated in terms of the five basic personality tendencies. These have a genetic component, about 50%. So five zero percent of the differences between people on these five basic personality tendencies are inherited. That doesn't mean they're impossible to change, but generally they won't change without some serious work. Mm-hmm. So despite getting divorced, despite winning the lottery, and you may have seen some documentaries on lottery winners, how they often go right back to how they were before mm-hmm. after a few months in terms of happiness, in terms of their personality, that sort of thing. So they're very, very useful to know these about yourself and about other people because it helps you predict how other people are likely to behave and respond to things and also for, predict how you're going to behave and respond to things. But of course, our values can change, our goals can change, our jobs can change. So many things can change, but our core personality, it's got a biological or neurological component. It's basically hardwired. That generally stays the same over time. So it's really helpful to know five basic personality tendencies, and they are the most researched and accepted personality dimensions ever. It's also found cross-culturally. So this is huge, huge, huge when it comes to 
understanding people. Wow. And actually, it's quite simple to do. It, it's so clearly defined. I yes. personally found it very simple to be, oh, yeah, okay, that's me, right? I mean, you know, nothing's 100%. It was very easy to say that's definitely how I handle this. And I can definitely say that outside things can change, but how you respond to things is really just inherent within you. That's right. That's right. And of course, and especially the second book of the series, I'm talking about, you know, whether you want to change these things, whether it's worth it to change. And I give a really quick example. I'll go through some of the traits in a moment, but yeah. one example is someone who has a high tendency to experience negative emotions, which is one of the major dimensions, and whether someone's what we call agreeable, which is sort of our attitude towards others. So I gave the example of whether it's worth trying to change your personality in a particular context. So the context I just wrote as an example, it may stay in the book, who knows, by the time I edit it later. Let's say your personalities have high levels of negative emotions and low levels of agreeableness. So you're kind of a skeptical person. That profile is highly predictive of anger and anger control issues, especially interpersonally. So I gave the example of, you know, often our personality is our strength. It's a strength and a weakness. Our personality is always a strength and a weakness. It depends on the context. So I give the example of, let's say your values, your purpose, your mission in life is to be a really good parent and your child is not behaving as well as you would like them to. And you have that profile. So you have a tendency to basically get angry and maybe say things you don't mean, that kind of thing. So in that circumstance, you'd have a good reason to try your best to alter your set point when it comes to where you fall on those two dimensions mm -hmm. as best as you can, because they're really going against your core values and your purpose and mission. Your purpose and mission is to be a really good parent, and you find yourself yelling at your child. You, you're going to have a hard time controlling it with that profile. You know, that's one of those examples where you should work on trying to alter as best you can. But for the most part, we don't try and alter it. We accept who we are, and there are many roads to Rome. So in terms of a big goal, you, you know, there's many ways to get to that goal, regardless of where you fall in with your personality, whether you're an introverted or extroverted, which is another one of the major dimensions, and most people have heard of those. Those are going to have a big impact in terms of how you get to your goal, but you can get your goal no matter where you fall, for the most part. So in business, so mm -hmm. as many of our listeners, you know, are entrepreneurs or they are, you know, they run their own business and they're dealing with people all the time, how would they apply this information, this knowledge? Yes. Yeah, so the first thing I would suggest people do is download the bonus that I sent you guys. Fill it out for yourself. As you notice, it probably took less than five minutes. I made it as simple as possible. So the first thing is to figure out where you fall on these dimensions and start to make this part of your language and your understanding of yourself and others. So let me quickly run through them so everyone knows yeah. what we're talking about. The first one I call susceptibility to negative emotions and stress. I call it negative emotions for short. That's exactly what it sounds like. We all fall along a continuum with some of us being really high, some of us being really low, most of us near the middle. It's a bell-shaped curve. And so, you know, people on the high end are easily worried, annoyed, pessimistic, that sort of thing. People on the low end rarely get worried. They're really calm most of the time. The next one is extroversion versus introversion. Again, it's all a continuum. I call that external stimulation tolerance. So people who are highly extroverted, most people know generally what that means, which is you tend to like being around people, socializing. But that's only one of the sub-traits that make up extroversion. Other traits have to do with your tendency to experience positive emotions, which surprising to many, but research repeatedly shows, 
your tendency to experience positive emotions has no relationship to where you fall on the negative emotions dimension because they're actually controlled by different areas of the brain. Also, whether you're a high energy person or not, that's also part of extroversion as well. Of course, introversion is different or the low end of extroversion is really different than what a lot of books in the media tends to portray as introversion. Introversion really is the opposite of extroversion like I've defined it. So people who are really introverted tend to be a little bit more detached. They're a bit more serious. They tend to be not as high energy. They tend to avoid excitement and external stimulation, whether socially or not even. The example being some people are really introverted would probably not like too much hanging out on the strip in Las Vegas. Uh, They're easily overwhelmed. Yes. (laughs) So it's not just social. It could be just the lights, the noise. Yeah, people. Yeah, the people. That external stimulation tolerance is much lower for people who are introverted. In the media, they talk about all these other things about creativity and sensitivity and Those actually are not related to what the research refers to as introversion versus extroversion. They're actually a combination of some of the other global five traits. And so the next one's openness to experience. I call it openness to change and new experiences. This is cool. This is the most controversial of the global dimensions, but for what it is, it's still pretty much a fact, I would say, in terms of understanding ourselves and others. So people who are high on this, they tend to be more artistic and creative. They're more curious. They're more willing to try things. They're just open-minded, even with other people from different cultures and different values. They're going to be more open-minded. People who are low tend to be more practical and down to earth. They tend to be more traditional. And remind me, we should definitely talk about, for example, if you have a client that falls on one of these sides, what does it mean, let's say, for working as a person trainer or nutritionist? Because these can be very important. The next one is agreeableness. Like I mentioned before, this really has to do with our attitude towards people. So people who are really agreeable are friendly, modest, trusting. They're pretty open about how they think and feel, but usually in a positive way. Whereas people who are low tend to be more skeptical. They're a bit more self-protective. They're more competitive, interpersonally competitive, that is. They're going to tell you what they really think, (laughs) that sort of thing. You know, if you're really low, you can be jerk. You're really low on it at times. The last one is called motivation and self-control. This is the motivational component, and this is exactly what it sounds like. People who are high on this are really self-controlled. They're disciplined. They tend to be really goal-oriented, ambitious, detail-oriented, and they're efficient as well. People low on this tend to be you know, inefficient, disorganized, undisciplined, don't have much ambition and drive. So these motivation and self-control is actually one of the strongest predictors of health outcomes, whether you're going to stick to a exercise routine and that sort of thing. So this would be really important just as an example for when you're working with clients. As we were saying earlier, clients who are motivated, they tend to be high on motivation and self-control naturally. And most athletes tend to be high on this as well. And people who are low on this are going to struggle a lot to motivate themselves to do things. I can give an example. Do you want me to go there now or do you want to? Yeah, sure. With this dimension, so people who are really high on motivation and self-control, they don't need encouragement, like too much encouragement. They're going to do it. They know what to do. They just have to know what to do. They don't need the energy or the motivation to get themselves to do it. They don't need any fear tactics. As long as they're convinced logically, they're going to do it. For example, a diet plan or exercise regimen. People who are low on this, though, will need a lot more structure. In the first book, Achieve, I do give an example of, again, all the information about people is altered to protect their anonymity. But I worked with a professional hockey player who had a bunch of problems. One of his personality dimensions, he was low on motivation and self-control. 
And often people would go, well, how could that guy make it to the NHL yeah. with low levels of motivation self-control? To get to the NHL, he was actually, we call a goon, which means an enforcer, someone <laughs> who fights a lot. And so oh, that's not okay. super surprising. But if you're low on motivation self-control, you need to control your environment a lot more than someone who's high on it. So when you're on a hockey team, for example, your whole life is basically controlled and scheduled for you. You have coaches telling you what to do at what time, you know, when to work out. You have, you know, people right there. That's just a quick example. But people, let's say in the fitness industry, if you have a client who's low on this, they're going to need a lot more structure from you, yeah. you know, for you to say, hey, go home and do this three times a week. It's going to be really hard for them. They're going to need to come and see you three times a week. Right. And then you just to sort of walk them through it because they need that external structure because they don't have that natural internal motivation that other people have. That's one quick example. I can go through almost every one of those and give examples of how it would apply, but I'll let you ask the question. I'll answer. <laughs> well, no, this is great because this tool alone, I mean, this very fast, a part of maybe their intake process, right? They can mm-hmm. you know, have them complete this and then boom, they've got some information now about their client so that it would allow them to service them better in the manner that works best for that client. Oh, exactly. This is the biggest problem, in my belief, in the, let's say, self-help book industry, is there's this idea that one size fits all, that we're all the same. I mean, our brains are generally the same physically, you know, they have the same lobes, and we all know that there are differences between us, and definitely there are differences in personality. This is well, well established now. And this is one of the motivations for me writing the book was, I was just been so surprised that this is such an important discovery that it hasn't percolated down into the self-help books. You know, it makes it more complicated to talk about, okay, well, it depends on where you fall in each of these dimensions for, you know, let's say motivating yourself as opposed to just saying, here, do these five things and you'll motivate yourself. Well, it depends on what your personality makeup is. And so it's huge. And I think that's a great idea is use the measure I developed. Uh, you know, this measure up to say is an adapted version of the most dominant measure on the market from a couple of researchers named Costa and McCray. I don't take full credit for it. This is me sort of making it user friendly. You can do it in five minutes as opposed to taking the real one as 240 questions. Oh, yeah. So, well, that's, yeah, that's for someone doing some deep work. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, you know, I either use this that I gave to you with my clients or I use what I call the real version, which is a long version to get people to complete. It depends on a number of issues. But, you know, this is super important to understand what you're dealing with. And again, getting these terms in your mind and also sort of being able to try and peg people on these without jumping to conclusions or stereotyping. But right. once you get a feel for people like this person's introverted, this person is really disagreeable, this person's really open to experience. And, you know, again, I, all these ideas are going through my head of how I can apply to your industry. But that is going to go a long way in terms of helping your clients because, As we know, success and failure in the fitness industry and nutrition and diets and exercising is more than, hey, did I just give them the information? It's really about motivating people, finding out what motivates them. And let me give you a quick example. I'm just like chomping at the bit. I think this could be useful. So one thing we know is in terms of motivating yourself. So let's just talk about that. Like I said, if you're high on motivation and self-control on that dimension or that tendency, you know, that's just going to be easier for you. But there's a couple of other subtleties with the other dimensions that will be helpful. So one is something called prevention-focused goals. So these are the types of goals people can make. So there's prevention-focused goals. Then there is promotion-focused goals. So prevention focus goals really are exactly what they sound like. You make goals to prevent bad things from happening, but your personality can actually predict the types of goals you'll tend to make and be motivated by. 
So if you know someone who's high on the first trait of negative emotions, in other words, they're prone to get stressed easily, get anxious easily, get self-conscious, those sorts of things, they're going to be more prone and more motivated by prevention-focused goals. So in other words, you can help your clients by showing them all the bad things that are going to happen if they don't take action or they don't reach all. Right. So if you have a client, you give them this measure and they say, look, they said, my doctor said I got to come in and lose 30 pounds. And so you, you know, to help motivate them, you might want to remind them or have, you know, have their iPhone or their smartphone go off and remind them, you know, why they're getting up to exercise, you know, because I don't want to die of a heart attack like my father did. And that's going to motivate them more. Then if you have a client who's low on negative emotions, that won't really motivate them. They don't experience a lot of negative emotions. They're not going to get scared and that's not going to, you know, motivate them to do something. When it comes to like big goals, like athletes, this can backfire because if you're high on negative emotions and you make a lot of prevention focused goals, uh-huh. it's going to make it harder for you to reach bigger goals. It's just, you're, you're not going to be willing to take big risks. So, you know, you'll go you're to not motivated by moving towards that, right? You're more motivated by moving away, like away from pain or towards pleasure. Yes, right? exactly. So moving away from pain isn't enough of a push at that level, at the high level, athlete, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. If they're not motivated by moving toward the thing, that may be the challenge for them. 